Uh, our Wednesday nights are a little bit different than our Sundays. Well, a lot different than our Sundays. Hopefully, if you're a first-time guest or visitor, you'll come back and join us on a Sunday morning, see what we regularly do, normally do um, in our worship. But uh, on a, typically on a Sunday morning, I uh, take a topic and I will speak on that topic, you know, for, for that message for the Sunday. But uh, on Wednesday nights, what we do is we open up the Bible and we go verse by verse through specific portions of the Bible so you can actually learn about the Bible in terms of its own context. In this case, we're studying the book of James, and he picks the topics that we discuss as we go through this verse by verse. So now we are in uh, James, the second chapter, and we're going to be picking it up at uh, verse 25. So before we get into it, let's uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness tonight. Thank you for this chance that we can gather together and sing and worship your name. And we pray now, Lord, as we open the word of God, that uh, you would inspire us, enlighten us, help us to grow from your word. Give us strength, instruction, and, uh, and wisdom, godly wisdom, we pray, so we can live more successful lives and help to build and establish your kingdom in the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so now, we are, uh, this particular section in the book of James, what we've been uh, talking about, what James has been talking about is the struggle and the debate between faith and what he calls deeds, or some translation says works. And it's an age-old debate about what really saves a person. Is it uh, just faith, or can you earn your way to God by doing good things? Well, we know from the scriptures that you cannot earn your way to God. Okay, the only way to come to God is by faith. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you could do. If you could have, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. He did not want to go to the cross. He didn't have have a death wish. In fact, he prayed in the garden, Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. He did not want to do it, but he knew, God knew the only hope for us is that Jesus would make the way for us through his sacrifice. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't generate it. You can't just be more good than you are bad, and hopefully you balance the things. There's nothing you can do. Without Jesus, you're doomed. Just that's the way it is. That's the bad news. The good news is with Jesus, you're not doomed. Hallelujah. All right. So this is the essence of Christianity. So then James comes along and says, okay, okay, great. I get it. Faith is good. This is salvation. But... How can you really tell if you have faith if you don't have any works? In other words, how can you say you have faith in God but you don't do anything? Obviously, faith, uh, uh, is, it's grace that saves us through faith. But uh, if you truly have faith, then you will have something to show for it. This is the argument that he's making. And um, he just used the analogy of Abraham... How Abraham, we knew he had faith because of what he did. His doing didn't earn him anything per se, but it was that his willingness to obey God. When God told him to take his son, his only son that he'd been waiting all his life for, and finally had as a very old man, and God speaks to him and says, I want you to take him up into the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham obeyed, and he's getting ready to sacrifice his son when God calls him and says, Don't stop. I don't want you to sacrifice. Don't hurt the boy. But uh, now I know that you truly, truly trust me, which was, you know, this is what makes him the father of faith, this incredible act of being willing to do this. So James' analogy is because of what he did, we saw that he had faith. In other words, they're much more tied together than a lot of people would like to admit. Then he uses another analogy starting in verse 25. Now remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians, as we've discussed 
already with this book. In the beginning of Christianity, they were all Jewish. They didn't even think non-Jews could be Christians. That's one of the big fights that you found in the book of Acts and in the Bible and debating, can a person who's not Jewish even go to heaven? I mean, this is how Jewish they were. They thought the rest of us were doomed. Just, you know, even Jesus couldn't help us. That's how bad they thought. And then God had to show them, hey, no, anybody who believes can be saved. That was a big deal for these boys. But uh, so initially, it was all pretty much a Jewish... uh, uh, Jewish Christians is, is what uh, was going on. That's who James is talking to. So he quickly refers to Abraham and then to this next one to a lady named Rahab. Okay? And he knew that his audience, these Jewish guys who really knew their Old Testaments, immediately knew what he was talking about. I presume many of you have no idea who Rahab is, and we're going to find that out in a second. So we pick it up in verse 25, and he says, In the same way, he just talked about Abraham. So so in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? What are you talking about? All right. So those of you who don't know your Old Testament very well, take a hard turn here. And we're going to go over to Joshua, the book of Joshua. It's one of the earliest books in the Old Testament. Way back there, Joshua, the second chapter is where we're going to go. Joshua, second chapter, and we'll start at verse 1, and we're going to read this little story so we get a reference of what in the world he's talking about. And by the way, let me encourage you, on Wednesday nights, bring your Bibles, because you'll actually be able to look at things in context. I know we have the big Bible in the sky up here, but uh, it's, it's good for you to actually hold it and to see and, and, and put it all into context. So, anyway, here we go. Joshua, the second chapter, verse 1. Now, then Joshua, the son of Nun, not son of a Nun, but Nun. Anyway, you get it. Okay. Son of Nun, secret. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. Secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said. So Joshua says, especially Jericho, we're getting ready to go take the land. Hallelujah. They've been wandering around the desert for 40 years, and they're finally going to go in and take this land that God said they could take. So he sent some spies. Go check it out, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, it doesn't say why they did this. I have no idea. Why would one enter town? Let's go over to the prostitute's house. I have no idea what they were thinking. It doesn't explain. I've just got to assume they figured by going to the seedy end of town uh, that, you know, the authorities would not be alerted to their presence. Does that make sense? I'm sure they weren't checking out the prostitute. They just stay in, you know, in the CDN of town. So they go out there, and this lady who has a prostitute, and apparently she rented rooms out for various purposes, obviously. But uh, rooms out. <laughs> anyway, to, these, to whoever was coming through. So they came, and, and they, they stayed there. Now, apparently, somebody did see them come into town and go to the seedy end of town and saw where they went. Because it says in the next verse that the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So they were detected. They saw these guys come into town and um, and where they went, which was at this hotel brothel whatever thing uh, where Rahab was was in charge. So the king of uh, Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So the king, here we go, get these guys, uh, Rahab. But but, uh, the woman who had taken, uh, the, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 
So she did a nice thing. She knew they were spies, but then she hid these guys. And then she said to the king, yes, the men came to me, but I, I don't know where, where they, I didn't know where they'd come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. And I don't know which way they went. I, I think maybe, maybe that way and go, if you go after them quickly, you, you can catch up with them. Okay. She basically was lying through her teeth to the king. Very risky proposition. Verse 6 says, the next verse says, but she had, what she really had done, she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under some stalks of flax uh, she had laid on the, out on the roof. So she had the stuff up there and they hid underneath the stuff and she went down to the king and said, look, I, I don't know, I didn't know where they came from, but I, yeah, they left and, and if you catch, you, maybe you can catch, catch up to these guys. So it says, the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, then the gate was shut. So, boom, off they go to chase these guys. Well, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up came up out of Egypt which was like 40 years earlier and uh, what you did to Sion and Og the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed when we heard of it our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord your God in, is God in heaven above and on earth below now then please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you this lady was sharp she knew God was on these guys side there was no way that the king and the fortress and where they were staying in Jericho was going to survive and she quickly allied herself with them so she said give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death well our lives for your lives the men assured her if you don't tell where we are going or what we are doing we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land so she, she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall now she had said to them go to the hills so the pursuers won't find you and hide yourself there for three days until they return and then you can go on your way and the men said to her okay this oath you made us swear so they swore yes we swear by God which you're not supposed to do nowadays by the way whole nother sermon but they swore to God that uh, you know uh, we won't hurt you but this swear that we made will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all these people that you want into your house if anyone goes outside the house into the street his blood will be on his own head we will not be responsible as for anyone who is in the house his blood will be on our hand head if a hand is laid on him but if you will tell what we are doing then we will be released from this oath that we swore to God and, uh, and she agreed. She said, well, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So this was her deal. And then uh, a few chapters later, you'll see when they came to Joshua and this is where they, you know, the walls came a tumbling down. Anyway, they came in and, and took over the joint. But when they came and they're killing every, ah, the big battles going on. But when they came, they had instructed everybody that when you see the scarlet cord, the sign, don't hurt anybody in that house. And uh, so they were, she was protected and they, they kept her word because they had protected these spies. So, back over to James, the other end of the Bible. So, 
his analogy against it. You know, Abraham was justified. We saw what faith he had when he was willing to sacrifice his son. And in the same way, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies. See, he's tying this thing to what you do. You can't just pray for people not do anything for them. He said it a little bit earlier. You know, if someone is really hungry, it does no good to say, well, God bless you, I'll be praying for you. Especially when it's in your power to give them something to eat. All right? You need to, if you have true faith, you will act on your faith. This lady acted on her faith and protected these guys. So, anyway. Uh, And then he ends the chapter. Well, he doesn't really end the chapter, as I said last week. These chapters and verses, for those of you who are not aware, were not written this way. They didn't write in chapters and verses. They stuck these in like 500 years later or something after these, or thousands of years later in this case, uh, in the Old Testament. Um, All these chapters and stuff, you know, they sat down and decided it was so hard to find where stuff was at. They broke stuff into chapters and, and, uh, you know, uh, verses and stuff so that the, you know, I can't remember exactly who it was. I told you last week, but some monks or something. And some of it makes great sense and other times you think they were into the sacramental wine because it makes no sense where they're breaking stuff into and it's like what are you talking about but uh, anyway at this end of the chapter this part he says as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without deeds is dead alright you've got to be able to have something to show for your faith that's his argument then he continues we see it as the next chapter but there, again there was really no chapter there so he goes on and he changes the subject here and he says not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. and In other words, everybody blows it. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody struggles. Okay? Don't be in such a desirous position that I want to be a teacher and I want to be in charge and I want to instruct everybody else on how to live this Christian life. He says, you know, don't be in such a hurry for that because when you do that, you're going to be judged more strictly than the other people. A little scary for those of us who teach because he says, because we all blow it. Everybody blows it. It's a reality. Even your pastor, I know it's hard to imagine me not being perfect at all times. <laughs> Talk to my wife. Anyway, um, so anyway, so he says we all stumble in many ways, and then he goes on to uh, to pick a specific area where we stumble. He says, if anyone is never in fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. In other words, we all blow it in many ways, but the biggest way everybody seems to blow it is with our big fat mouths. And we say things we shouldn't say. And we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Ever been there? Ever wish you hadn't said something? Oh man, I live there. Uh, (laughs) Because I got a big mouth, you know. I talk and then I think it through. Um, (laughs) So he uses an, an analogy. He says, we put bits, or when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. So here you take this little bitty bit into this big horse, but this little bit can control the entire horse. What is his analogy? Your tongue does the same thing for you. It can control you. It can put you in the right direction or can mess you up. The Bible says your tongue has the power of life and death. Boy, if you really got a revelation of that, you wouldn't be so stinking mean. And you would watch what you say. And you would speak life. I try and encourage people. Speak life 
into your life. Speak life into your children. Speak life into your marriage. A lot of people, they speak just death. Everything stinks. You're such an idiot. You're a moron. I'm going to kill you, little brat. What's the matter with you? And then you come to church. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I don't know. My life just stinks. I don't know why. Because you're speaking death constantly. Death and criticism, negativity will destroy your home. It will destroy your life. It will destroy your business. I don't care where you plug in, Jack. You got a negative mouth. You are just puking death. Speak life. Oh, my goodness. I could preach a whole sermon just on that. I probably will one of these days. All right. Anyway, moving on. He says, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Oh my goodness. And the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the, co- sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Have you ever felt like you're in hell because of something you said? Have you ever felt like things were going great then you had to say it? You had to express yourself. You you know, I just got to be honest with my feelings. Don't do that. (laughs) It's a bad idea. Goodness gracious, you know, people who say, well, I just got to say how I got to express how I feel. And, and you know, our, our uh, pop culture encourages that. You know, we got these psychologists and psychiatrists. They get couples together and they try and share your feelings. Open up. Just say whatever's on. And they work hard to pull every little possible thought in word form out of your body. And then they wonder why 80% of people who go to marriage counselors end up in divorce. The reason I'm still married for 34 years is I don't say every little stupid thing that comes into my brain. There's days I really want to say something and I go, I better not. (laughs) I don't don't share my feelings. (laughs) You know, the same is true in all kinds of situations. It can be at work, it can be in any friendship, any kind of situation. Just running off of the mouth thinking I need to just share what I really feel is not always your smartest course. These people who are convinced that you will explode if you don't share what's in your brain are idiots wrapped up in morons in my opinion. (laughs) Better to keep silent and be thought of as a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> the tongue is a fire, a world of evil. It'll set your cor- the, life of, the course of your life on fire from the fire of hell if you're not careful about what you say. Now, the beautiful thing about this is this. I, I love the way he says it. Look, he says the tongue is also a fire. It corrupts the whole person. It sets on course the fire of life and itself is set on fire of hell. He actually refers to your mouth as something separate from you. Right? This is good to keep in mind when you are with someone who says something incredibly stupid. Are you hearing me? Because it 
is his tongue. It is her tongue. You can call him on it, say that wasn't nice, that wasn't, but don't, some people, you're, some of y'all are just as mean as a rattlesnake. Because as soon as someone says something mean, then you hold that to them over their heads for the rest of their life. Well, you said what I didn't mean. I don't care, you said it. I said, you said that I was, I was ugly or what? I was too fat in this dress or whatever your thing is. You saw, you said it and, I'm, and you, I'll never forgive you for that. You know, hell, whoa, 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 relax a little bit. There's a separation between that person and his tongue. Are you hearing me? Now that person is responsible for the tongue and he will have to answer for the tongue. But the tongue, he's talking literally, he says the tongue in and of itself is a problem. Is a troublemaker. It will say things people don't really want to say. Nobody wants to take the fire of hell and light it to his life. Right? I mean, I think I'll take some hell fire and just light myself on fire. (laughs) Nobody's interested, but yet the tongue causes that. The tongue causes that. So when somebody says something mean and nasty to you, and they ask you to forgive them, for, you need to forgive them anyway. Or you go to hell. So I don't like you. If that makes you mad, you got to forgive me anyway, or you go to hell. <laughs> anyway, I'm just, you know what I'm trying to say. Jesus said you can't go around hating people and think you're going to heaven. That's not going to work that way. All right, so you got to forgive people, particularly don't hold over people's heads things they say, particularly when they ask you to release them from what they said. And quite frankly, I think you ought to grace people out. They shouldn't even have to ask. You should be able to, as a mature Christian, look at someone and think, you know, that was just, that was that tongue from just reaching into the fires of hell and cut people some slack. Y'all looking at me like I dropped in from Mars. (laughs) Cut people slack don't be holding over everybody every little stupid thing because if you do that all you do is empower that tongue that likes to take the fire of hell and mess things up and make it even stronger in your life there are things people say to me that they never apologize for but I release them why that's just his tongue going off someone says to me that's just them I try and separate people from what they say if you don't you're going to find yourself struggling with forgiveness and you're going to allow that fire of hell to spread onto you we need to be firemen you need to have an extinguisher on you are you hearing me man you light me on fire blow it off that's why someone says mean or something nasty just then smile it's just the stupid tongue cut each other some slack on that stuff verse 7 all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures, creepy crawly things, everything, creatures of the sea, are being tamed and have been tamed by man. Mankind can come in and tame almost anything. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Notice again how he's separating the tongue from the individual. Seriously, this will set you free, some of y'all, that always get your feelings hurt by other people. Get a revelation of this. There's a difference between people and that tongue. There's especially people who are not believers in Jesus or immature Christians who just blah, 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 saying all kinds of things. Separate it out. Don't get so freaked out about every little word that comes at you. It will torture your life. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will beat the snot out of me. It's the way people live. They get crushed by words. And you've got to be careful. Again, the, t- the tongue has the power of life and death. But with this, I think you, a mature Christian get to a place where you mitigate a lot of that.
by separating it out. So he goes on, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And then he talks about some inconsistency among believers. And, and this he says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. I love you God, I love you God, I love you God. And with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. You're praising God, and then you look at the person who's made in the image of God, you say, I love you, Jesus, you're a jerk. I love you, God, I can't stand you. I love you, God, get away from me, you stink. All right? And we say mean, nasty, critical things about people, but while praising God the whole time. Not realizing there's inherent value in every human being, made in the image of God, He says it's inconsistent for us to praise God and then to criticize people in a nasty way. As if there's a way to criticize them in a nice way, but you know what I'm saying. Okay? He says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursings. And he says, my brothers, this should not be. Can both water, fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The implied answer, of course, is no. My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives? Again, no. Or a grape fig bear figs? Grapevine bear figs? No. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. In other words, don't, don't get into this thing of, I love you, Jesus, but I can't stand that guy, and I hate that person, and you know, I love Jesus, I just want my husband to die and go to hell. You know, this, this is, you think I'm making this stuff up? You'd be surprised what I hear sometimes from Christians. Don't think in these terms. This incredible inconsistency. Okay, so there, we're done with the tongue. It's a mess. Be careful with what you say. He said earlier, back in, where was it? Um, Be quick to, yeah, in the first chapter, chapter, verse 19, you have to pull it up, but my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. You know, all in an effort, again, to mitigate the, this power of the tongue. Uh, and having said all of that, remember he said, nobody gets this right. Nobody does this perfectly. All the more reason to separate it from people. Because you can't, you, you've yet to meet the person who won't hurt you somehow with his tongue. Are you hearing me? It doesn't, nobody can do it. Don't let that beat up on you. Alright, I think I made my point. Okay, moving on now. He kind of changes the subject again, uh, which he does continually through this whole little book here. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Ooh, ooh, ooh. This is really strong stuff. See, I don't even know what you just said. Listen to this. He says, if you think you're wise, demonstrate it by humility. By the simple things that you do. Show that you're wise by the way that you live your life. Wisdom is, most people figure, I will show you how wise I am by what I think. And I'll tell you. And there's the tongue going again. Well, I think we ought to do this. And I think we ought to do that. You know what? I think this church needs my advice. I don't think we should do things this way. There's, there's too much smoke in this room. I don't like it. <laughs> okay, thank you for sharing. You know, well, I think this and I think that. And people actually begin to think that they are demonstrating their maturity and their wisdom <laughs> by spewing forth what they think. 
Oh, I flicked this. And the Bible says this. Love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. We got a bunch of puffer fish in the church today, you know. I'm talking about churches in general. You know, I just get, well, I know this. Well, I went to this Bible study. And I listened to so-and-so on TV. And I read this one book about that thing. And we start walking around. Let me tell you what I think. I just wish I had a pen and... Don't be so quick to tell everybody what you think. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, which is exactly where a lot of this comes from, this desire to share your years of experience, to share your unsolicited insights, comes from selfish ambition and envy, trying to get in position, trying to get control, trying to move up the ladder in the organization. He says, if you do that, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quote unquote, I love that, such quote-unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. James, tell us how you really feel. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. This is what happens in so many churches. And the reason it happens, I mean, people going at each other and yelling at each other and fighting and stuff like that, because they get empowered to share what they think. And it causes problems. And what I'm talking about is most churches in America, uh, evangelical churches particularly, are congregationally run churches. The congregation votes on everything. And they have bylaws and rules for uh, discussing fights and they get into these you know meetings and they will start to debate and see who has the votes for this or that and I don't think the organ should be on this side of the platform it should be on that side of the platform well I disagree and they start fighting and fussing over some of the stupidest things I know of churches who have split in half because they got a color that a lot of people didn't like for the carpet Deacons and elders who are in the parking lot punching each other, throwing punches. I just heard about this from a church recently in this area. Went through that exact same thing. Large church split right down the middle. Why? It happens over and over and over again because they empower people, they encourage this environment of I'm going to tell you what I think and everybody starts jockeying for power and all this kind of nonsense and it just creates problems it's one of the reasons there are 400,000 churches in America and 80% of them have 100 people or less how sad is that do you realize we're a mega church we got 2,300 people attend here on a fairly regular basis and if they all show up there's a good 3,000 of them that show up People say, that's amazing, you got a mega church. And I just think, mega church? We're still, we're still scratching the surface. You know how many unchurched people there are in this area? We're a mega church just because we don't have, we have more than 100 people in it. 250 people, you're rocking and rolling. 400, like, holy cow, how'd you do that? 750, that's amazing. 1,000, holy cow! Over 1,000, you're a Ho Chi Mama church. Millions of Christians in America 
and we can't get more than a hundred of them together at a time. Why? Because I, I'll tell you what I think. Goodness gracious. Now this church, we don't do that. It's, our church is not a congregationally run church. It is a pastor, elder run church. We get together and decide things uh, with advice of people uh, in our congregation, on our, on our advisory committee and stuff like that. But we, we don't have this vote. If you, if you really want a church where you get to vote on what goes here, you're at the wrong church. <laughs> we, we ain't going to vote. We don't vote. Say, who decided this puppet instead of that other puppet? Me. Well, I don't like this one. Okay. Next subject. I mean, who cares? We get into this voting and fighting, and we actually empower people trying to jockey for these votes and these control and these why these churches that keeps ripping them apart, and it is just sad. And he says this wisdom. Well, I really know God told me this, and I really think this, and and I've been a deacon in this church for 25 years, and I think I know what's right for this congregation. Oh, shut up. <laughs> and off they go, and they get puffed up. There's all these puffer fish getting in the room. This is not wisdom. You want to be wise? Look at what he says in the next verse. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness this is a sign if you're truly a wise person not what you know but your heart how do you attack things how do you approach things do you have a sweet spirit do you have a humble heart do you have a submissive attitude do you come with consideration and mercy or do you come in just busting the door down I'm going to tell you what I think Anyway, all right, then he goes on, we're now in chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. (laughs) Then he goes on, he's got this great little verse here, he says, you don't have because you don't ask God. Well, I don't have anything because you don't ask God. A lot of people, the number one reason people don't get more answers to prayer is because people don't pray. It's, it's, the, it's the number one reason. Why didn't God help me? Did you pray about it? I don't know. I cried for a minute. You don't have because you don't ask God. And then when you do ask, he says, you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, God is not a moron. He knows what's right for you, what's best for you, and what's best for the advancement of his kingdom. So, well, I prayed and God didn't give me an answer. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. I didn't get it. No is an answer. <laughs> it's just not the answer you want. Just want it to get your own, just advance yourself. I wonder how many prayers God hears the night of a big lottery drawing. Can you imagine? Man, that's why everybody prays. The heathens are praying. Unbelievers are praying. 
Christians praying, you shouldn't be praying for this nonsense. God, give me, God, if you just help me win that hundred million dollars, I'll be really good with it. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a hundred grand, God. Wow. This is, God needs your money. You know what I'm saying? Why didn't he answer my prayer? Right there. Because he asked with wrong motives, you can spend what you get on your own pleasures. Be careful with that stuff. And by the way, be careful. Now, I, I, might, I might be stepping on some toes here and getting into more dangerous territory. But uh, Christianity is not a means to advance one's worldly goods. The Bible says the, the scriptures is, is not a mean, Righteousness, those who teach that righteousness is, is a way to get gain in your life are, are erring. They're making a mistake. There are people who actively follow the scriptures and try and actually give and stuff all for the main motive of getting back. That's their whole deal. That's what, Now Jesus did teach, if you give it shall be given to you. Some tenfold, some hundred, some whatever. They but these people, are, they're like uh, spiritual slot machines. You know, I said this word and I quoted this verse and I gave a hundred dollars. Praise God, I get ten thousand back. Hallelujah, praise God. Give me that slot machine. Hallelujah, praise God. Hello? That's not how we approach things. So well, I quoted that one scripture. You need to know something. This isn't witchcraft. Are you hearing me? Some people approach the Bible like it's some kind of a... Witchcraft is using spells and phrases and stuff to get what you want. Hullabulla, 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 who? Hullabulla, 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 who? Well, I said it, now it's going to happen. Some people, I'm, I'm just I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying, be aware of it. You'll see people, they use the Bible like some kind of... Like they're casting little spells. Well, I quoted this verse. I'm going to get this. I'm going to quote this. I'm going to get that. I quoted it. <clears throat> Don't approach God that way. I think he finds it offensive. You say, can we not trust God's word? Of course you can. You can stand on God's word, but it's not some kind of a formula. Is this making sense to anybody? Okay, good. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. Then he gets mean. He does. He just gets as mean as he can be. I like this guy. (laughs) He's a mean preacher. All of a sudden he says, you adulterous people. Whoa. Hello. Adulterous people. You started out by saying, my dear brothers. What happened to the brothers? I like the brothers part. What was, what is this? You adulterous people. Talk about changing the channel. You adulterers, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in, live in us tends toward envy? In other words, God is jealous. He's a very jealous God. That's why he said, have no other gods before me. But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So now what in the world is he talking about? You mean I can't have any friends in the world? No, no, you can have friends. I mean, quite frankly, uh, it's pretty hard to win someone to Jesus if you can't win them to yourself in the first place. Okay? 
You need to learn how to win people to yourself, how to be friendly towards people. There's people who say, you know, I preach the gospel, but I can't get anybody to get saved. You don't know what the problem is. The problem is you're obnoxious. <laughs> Have you met any of these people? They take the Bible and they're shoving it in your face all the time. Praise God, are you saved? Are you saved? Hallelujah, are you saved? Go away. <laughs> they're obnoxious. They're in your face all the time. This isn't how you win people to Jesus. You need to win them to you first. Be kind to people. Be generous to people. Be friendly to people. And be bold. Don't be afraid to share who, who, who you believe in and what your faith is. The Bible encourages us to do that. But you don't just lean by shoving a tract in somebody's face. Generally speaking, this is not the most effective way to win somebody. So it's not that you can't have friends. What's it talking about? It's talking, you start, there's, there's two different cultures on earth. There's the culture of the world and then there's the culture of God. We are to belong to the culture of God. Um, I was speaking earlier today on a, on a special message via video to the church in Stevens Point and, and talking about how, you know, the Bible says that we are strangers and aliens in this world. We're just passing through. We don't really belong here. When you really become a person of faith, you don't really fit anymore. There's something a little bit odd about us. That's why when you really come to faith, you know, some of your friends think you're like, Ugh, you know, or your family thinks you've gone nuts, or they, right away they can sense, you know, dee, 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 what's the matter with you? And uh, they can tell you've turned into an alien. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? It's just that we don't really belong part of this fight, dog eat dog, nasty, I hate you, you jerk world. We now live in a world of love, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering. We walk in the love of God. We make God our number one concern, not anything else. Whereas most people, it's okay to believe in God, but it's really not their main concern. Other things come first in their lives. I mean, on, on a multitude of levels, we're not, if you're truly working, walking as a person of faith, you don't really fit in with the world but he says these guys these guys were truly wonderful Christians but they've become so engrossed in the world and they begin to think and act and behave like those people who are not of faith and in this context he says you're committing adultery what do you mean I'm not committing adultery I'm not having sex with someone no 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 you're committing adultery on God don't fall so in love with the world and all the things of the world and all the trappings of the world thinking and processing and you know I want this and I want that seek first the kingdom of God put him first otherwise you're living and quite frankly I think this is the number one problem in the church in America today I think if James were to talk to American Christians today he would start with the phrase you adulterous people you claim to love God but you chase after everything else other than God you say God is number one in your life but he really is just as you can fit him in if, if it's an inconvenience at all you, you push it aside for a lot of people going to church only happens when there's nothing good on TV Going to church is great. You know, it's a good thing church is on Sunday morning. There's nothing going on. Seriously, in America. You know, if, if regular church was like on a good TV night, 
we'd have a hard time getting people on. You know, a lot of you, man, if it's up against desperate housewives, you ain't coming. I mean, come on. We love Jesus. We love God as long as it doesn't get in our way. As long as it doesn't really require anything. You say, boy, you're picking on me tonight. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm not thinking about any individual. It's just the reality. We live in a very self-centered, narcissistic culture. And I get that. It's all about me, 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 me. We're surrounded. Everything on TV, all the messages and everything is, it's all about you. You're worth it. You're worth it. Don't you deserve the best? You've got to have the best. I know you could wash your hair for this thing for only a dollar, but don't you deserve this thing, which is really the same stupid thing, for ten dollars? But it's in a prettier bottle, you know, and it smells pretty. And you deserve the best. It's all about you, 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 me, 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 me. It's one of the reasons why people struggle so much, even particularly in the area that I deal so much in, in the area of marriages. Why do marriages fall apart? Mainly because people are selfish. Pretty much boils down to that. You know, me, 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 And off to the races they go. Everybody wants what they want. Starts tearing them apart. And they're trying to find someone that God made just for them. I know it's really God if this person only thinks about me. And does everything I want. Well, nice. Lots of luck finding that person. Alright? Everything's so selfish. We tend to be so narcissistic. You know, a few months ago I talked about this whole idea of, of children. One of the things that we don't have a lot of today in, in churches is, is large families. We have very, very small families. In poor countries, they value large families. In America, we can't afford them. We can't afford them. What do you mean we can't afford them? Of course we can. No, no, because we want big screen TVs. We want cars we don't really need. We want houses we can't really afford. And, just, and I'm talking Christians. See, in this result, in this end, we think and act like the culture around us. We get so caught up. We fall into slavery to the massa. Massa card. <laughs> Please, Massa, help me out, Massa. I promise, Massa, if you just help me get this thing this week, Massa, I'll, I'll work it off, Massa, in the fields, you know, for the next 30 years, paying it off, Massa. Thinking, acting, be careful. Don't get sucked into the world. It's not your friend. Jesus is your friend. Whew. All right. Now that I made everybody angry. (laughs) We'll bring our service to an end. Uh, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to end. uh, We're going to take our uh, offering for tonight. And our musicians can come up for uh, their final song. Uh, By the way, how many of y'all know uh, Pastor Art Gregg? He he served here for some years uh, on staff. A wonderful, wonderful man. I've known him for many, many, many years. Uh, very influential in helping starting some of the key Christian radio stations in Wisconsin. WEMI, WEMI, I think you've heard that out of Appleton and Green Bay here. He started that radio station. WGNV, a big station in central Wisconsin. He started, in fact, that's when I first met him when he was starting that. A wonderful guy, wonderful family. Anyway, he passed away the other night and uh, went home to be with Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's a sad and joyful thing at the same time. You know, he was having a real hard time. And uh, as much as you love him and you hate to see loved ones go, you can't help but rejoice. But here's a faithful servant. I'm just, I think heaven just partied down big time. You know, when Brother Art showed up 
hey brother how's it going you know and he just has a spring in his step today that he'd lost for quite a while and it's a wonderful thing and and we want to remember his family in prayer and uh, uh, those of you who can make it or are interested they're going to have the funeral on Sunday at Christ the Rock Church I think it's at 4 o'clock down in, in Appleton so anyway just for those of you who are interested in that you guys can come forward and we're going to take our offering tonight and serve God with our